Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Stian Westlake. Stian is an expert on technology and innovation policy based in the UK, where he's advised the government. He is co-author with Jonathan Haskell of the fascinating book, Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, which was selected as a book of the year for 2017 by The Economist, The Financial Times, National Review, and Marginal Revolution, and is described as required reading for policymakers by Bill Gates. Together, Stian and Jonathan have co-authored an essay for the new issue of City Journal entitled An Agenda for the Intangible Economy, which explores how future productivity and prosperity depends on how well our institutions and policymakers adapt to the realities of the new intangible economy. The essay isn't available on the City Journal website just yet, so stay tuned for that over the coming weeks and take this as an opportunity to subscribe to the magazine if you haven't already. That's it for the introduction. My conversation with Stian Westlake begins after the music. Stian, welcome to 10 Blocks. To start with, for our listeners, how do you define this emerging economy you describe uh, in your recent book, Capitalism Without Capital, and in your City Journal article, which you call the intangible economy? What characterizes the intangible economy? The essence of the intangible economy is that we're seeing the emergence of a new type of capital. What I mean by that is the stuff that businesses invest in has changed. Once upon a time, it was predominantly physical things, machines, factories, vehicles. Now, the majority of business investment in a country like the US or the UK is stuff that you can't feel or touch. It's things like research and development, organizational capability, branding, artistic originals. And these things are as economically valuable to businesses, but they're not material. So what are, what are some of the uh, broader characteristics of intangibles? How does intangible capital differ from the physical kind? This is why the change to an intangible economy is so important, because intangible assets have a few different economic properties. I call them the four S's because they still begin with S. Scalability, a little intangible goes a long way. Sunkenness in the economic sense in that if you have an intangible asset and your business goes bust, it's not worth much, for example, to creditors. Spillovers, which is to say that if you invest in something like an idea or a piece of R&D, you can't be sure that your business rather than a competitor or someone else will get the benefit, the benefits spill over. And then finally, synergies, the idea that these intangibles are particularly valuable when you combine them together in the right ways. And how uh, has the emergence of these characteristics um, affected the economy as a whole, and uh, why should we really care about uh, this transition? We think that you can explain a lot of the unusual things going on in today's economy because of this move to intangibles. So a case in point, one of the things that we know is that the gap between what you might think of as leading firms, the most profitable productive companies in any industry or country, and the rest, the laggard firms, has increased dramatically in the last 30 years. The best are pulling away and the worst are kind of lagging behind. 
And we think that can be very compellingly explained by the idea that you see this most often in industries that are most intangible intensive. And if these intangibles are scalable, you can spread them across a very big business. And if they're particularly good when you combine them with one another, that is a recipe for the best pulling away and the rest lagging behind. Do the laggards stop investing in intangibles because of this? We believe so. And we think if you look at industries where these gaps appear, investment seems to be concentrated in the leader firms, which is why if you look at, say, tech firms, the amount of investment being done by Google and Facebook and things like R&D is very high. But the aggregate levels in the economy are low, despite low interest rates and the kind of technological cornucopia we see around us. So if you could find a way to increase uh, the participation in the intangible economy more broadly, close some of that gap, uh, would that be beneficial to the economy as a whole? Or, that or are would we be, fated to have this? this, this the, if, we can br- if we can bridge that gap, if we can help laggards to catch up, that's, that, that would be a great thing. The problem is some of the mechanisms that policymakers often think about for that kind of thing works less well in an intangible economy. The idea of just giving, say, government grants to, 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 to invest, less effective because the benefits accrue so much to the leading firms. Well, well, we'll get to some of the policy recommendations you make in your City Journal article shortly, but um, I'd like to just uh, drill down a little bit more on some of these trends. One of the others I think you've mentioned in the book and in this article is a rise in uh, litigation and patent suits, things like that. I guess uh, this this would characterize uh, companies that are very idea-centric. If your idea can be stolen in a spillover, um, you're going to be suing people. Is, is that basically it? That's absolutely right. And one way to think about this is rights over physical property, rights over tangible assets, are kind of as old as human written law itself. The oldest human law codes um, include the ownership of physical assets. But the idea of what it means to own an idea or a brand are much more recent. Kind of, you see the first laws on these kind of things in around the 17th, 18th century. And I guess what that means is our social norms, the understanding on which laws are based for owning ideas, is much less firm, which means that there is a lot more to be gained from, as you say, litigating over a patent, having a dispute over whether your partner drivers in your ride-hailing app are your employees or not, and therefore what rights you rights and obligations you have towards them. These things are much more contested. And wouldn't it uh, also give rise to um, an incentive to be lobbying for political power? It absolutely increases the returns to lobbying for political power and indeed increases the material returns to people who have that power and can use it effectively in lobbying. So if you are a kind of Washington insider, a Westminster insider, a Brussels insider, the commercial benefits to that increase as intangibles become more important in the economy. Now, why, uh, why is it good that we're investing so much in intangibles? Although, as you, as you note, that investment has slowed somewhat uh, post-financial crisis, but maybe address both of those things. Why is it a good thing uh, that we are shifting to uh, an intangible economy, and uh, what has slowed the rate of investment? I think it's a good thing for two reasons. The first is almost is that it's just a function of society getting richer. Um, once, as as we get richer, as we satisfy our material needs, our needs for 
emotional fulfillment, for display, for, for, for intellectual concepts and for entertainment grow. So this is just an inevitable characteristic of society fulfilling more of its material needs. And that is something we should, we should all be happy about. The other thing is, you know, if we're concerned about how we make use of resources, if we're concerned about the environment, then being able to achieve economic growth without continually using up more of our material resources is net-net a good thing. And uh, how does this affect productivity? There, there has to be a dimension to it there, right? Because we have had a, a pretty, you know, pretty bad record in terms of productivity growth since the financial crisis. That's absolutely right. And we think there are kind of two really interesting links between the rise of the intangible economy and the slowing down of productivity growth. Um, the first is that since roughly the time of the financial crisis, we've noticed something really interesting, which is that the rate of investment in, in the rate of growth in investment in intangibles, which has been steadily growing since 1945 or earlier, mm -hmm. has started to slow. And um, Jonathan Haskell and I are working on understanding what the reasons for this are. But it might be that a lot of our institutions are financial, and as you said, our legal institutions are not geared towards the, the, the further deployment of this economy. And one of the things you would expect to see um, if intangibles are slowing because they're spillovers, is you expect to see a slowdown particularly in total factor productivity, that part of productivity which measures innovation and is captured by spillovers. And that's precisely what we have seen in the productivity crisis that we face in the US or the UK or other countries. So we think that's a smoking gun that intangibles play a big, a big role in this. Now, uh, your, your City Journal essay um, extends uh, the argument of your book into a more explicitly policy-driven agenda. Um, you have a number of, of very interesting suggestions. One of them is uh, addressing a problem with the intangible economy in that um, you tend to get these kind of clusters where you have a lot of productive people in successful cities, but there are also areas that are not so successful, cut off, from this, uh, this uh, kind of productive explosion, agglomeration, um, as, as Ed Glazer, the urban economist, calls it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about um, what we should do or how we should think about um, sort of less successful cities and more successful ones? Sure. Let's start first of all with the more successful cities, and then we can move on to the less, less successful ones afterwards. Um, one of the ironies of the intangible economy is that one particular type of tangible asset becomes all the more important, and that is kind of prime urban real estate. Because, as you say, because of the spillovers, because of the synergies, because these intangibles are good when you mix them together, places where people meet and exchange ideas are going to do better and better. Um, the challenge, as Ed Glazer and people like Enrico Moretti have observed, is that contributes to an escalation of real estate prices, rising rents in these places, with, uh, which causes two things. It causes a slowdown of investment in intangibles because people can't afford to live in San Francisco or Manhattan. And it also stops the benefits spilling over from your kind of elite knowledge workers mm -hmm. to the people in non-elite technical jobs that previously would have gained from the salary uplift. So this is a big problem. Um, and obviously the simple answer that everyone and no doubt most of your listeners would, would immediately subscribe to is you've got to make it easier to build housing. Mm -hmm. But of course the devil is in the detail. And one of the things that, 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 that we talked about in our article and that I mentioned in my piece with Sam Bowman, Reviving Economic Thinking, is a way to get around that, which is the idea of trying to push 
zoning decisions and planning decisions down from the higher levels, the city level, or in the UK we do a lot of this stuff at the national level, where it's very easy for special interest groups to take over the lobbying and, 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 and prevent development. Mm-hmm. Pushing it down very much to the grassroots. So in the UK we've called this street votes, making planning decisions almost on a street-by-street basis. Sometimes in the UK, people, in the US, people like Tyler Cohen have described this as um, local or block-by-block zoning. Um, and so you th- get the buy-in uh, for an expansion of housing from the existing neighbors on the street. You get it in a very local area. And what that means, it's very possible that under this kind of system, most blocks, most streets would say, no, you know, the NIMBYs will win. Nothing will be built. But because you're dividing it down, you get enough variation that some streets, that some blocks will, possibly attracted by the massive windfall gains to property owners that accrue from this kind of development, will yeah. say, this is worth doing. It's a kind of, it's, it's a hack to try and get around the political, the special interest. Well, problem o- over time, you would see the streets gaining in property values that had opened up to more housing. You would. Yeah. I mean, this is a kind of, if you're talking about, say, a low density, close to public transport street in a city like London or probably in New York, um, you know, everyone who owns a property on that street becomes a millionaire. This is a very attractive option from 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 it's, the It is a way to get local buy-in. Yes, that's a very very so clever idea. some areas, uh, um, something worth exploring in an American context as well. I think um, you also mention transportation connections, improving them. I, I think the example, if I recall, from the piece we, we've just published was Wigan That's right. and Manchester City. Manchester City's uh, come back and is kind of a, a successful city now, big big place. Wigan, not so much. That's right. And Wigan is kind of a but proverbially— it's close, it's, right? it's, it's, it's yeah. very close. It's a proverbially poor English city. George Orwell wrote about Wigan's deprivation 70, 80 years ago. Um, but it's doing very badly. And But, of course, the, what makes this strange is the distance from Wigan to Manchester, which is an increasingly prosperous urban area, is the same as the distance between the commuter suburbs of London and the centre of London or the commuter suburbs of Manhattan or of New York and the centre of Manhattan. Um, and I guess what that suggests is that there is an infrastructure solution to at least some of these left-behind places problems, because a lot of left-behind places are pretty close to agglomerations, but are poorly connected. So if we can deliver some of our transport investment towards improving local transport. Bus lines, things like that. It's much right. more buses than it is Hyperloops, for example. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty basic stuff. That uh, could help. Um, you also talk about how um, the financial system is not very good at dealing with the intangible economy. Um, and that has distorting effects. It's leading banks to... Uh, you know, invest more in things like mortgages and and property than it is uh, in in intangible firms. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and what might be done? Like, why is that a problem, and um, what might be done about it? Sure. the The root cause of all of this is the idea that intangibles represent sunk costs. So, if a building owns lots of tangible assets um, and it goes bankrupt. Creditors can, can take the can and they're worth the something. You can resell a boat or a, a exactly. building, uh, put and, it to a new purpose. And these of. things regularly get flipped quite quickly. Mm-hmm. They're a good prospect for debt. 
uh, for lenders, for debt investors. Um, intangible businesses, that's much less the case. These assets, like an asset in software or a brand, will often be worthless to 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 a debtor. And this get this gets you to what um, the academic Stephen Cicchetti called um, the curse of collateral, mm-hmm. which is that in an increasingly intangible economy the business lending aspect of the banking system and the bond market becomes less suited to what Keynes called the capital development of the economy, Um, which gets you to an interesting position. So one option is you try and find forms of equity investment. And this is effectively what Silicon Valley and other tech clusters With venture capital, have done. Right, yeah. But, you know, the venture capital tech sector took 60 years to grow, required a lot of people to lose a lot of money, required a lot of soft investors to be very kind of flexible in terms of return for a long period of time before you got to the levels of profitability you see now. Um, venture capital is only going to be relevant to a very small number of high-growth right. firms. But the question is, how can you develop more equity-like products for business finance. Um, One example of that being done well, if you look at the way German business banking works, German business loans um, are often not secured on the property of the entrepreneur, but they include an equity-like warrant. So banks, in practice, end up holding quite a lot of instruments that are a little bit like equity, and consequently they're more willing to invest in risky businesses without so many fixed assets. I see. Um, you, you also call for policymakers to adjust in certain areas. Um, regulators are, are not very uh, adept at dealing with the intangible economy. Um, and then the question of government funding of research, whether it's necessary or not. So maybe address those two things. What, what is the problem with regulation in this area? Um, we've gone through a kind of fantastic period of development of regulation over the last 40 or 50 years where we move from a very kind of ad hoc method of regulating businesses to a very rules-based way of regulating competition, looking at market concentration, Mm -hmm. looking at price markups. And unfortunately, in an intangible economy where, as you said before, there is so much contestation, that rules-based system becomes less and less appropriate. So in my own role in government advising on, among other things, intellectual property policy in the UK, we found this. We found that when we were dealing with issues between, say, tech platforms and intellectual property rights holders, rather than being like a utilities regulator where you could say, how much has your tariff gone up this year, is that right? You'd be effectively exercising ad hoc judgments on one specific issue after the next, each one pretty sui generis, each one negotiated. So this creates a real challenge for regulators because regulators need to be much more tech savvy. They need much more, they need to cultivate more political legitimacy so that they can make these decisions in an effective way. But it also massively increases the scope for um, for dodgy dealing effectively, for, for, for illegitimate action if the incentives and the governance are not good. And as for uh, government funding of research, um, this goes on already, of course, uh, but but um, why is it necessary um, and how might we do it uh, perhaps more effectively than we currently do it? This stems from the spillover characteristic that, intangible have, that intangibles has. And one of the things that economists have always known is when an investment has high spillovers, if you leave the market to its own devices, businesses will invest less than is socially optimal because they don't necessarily, they can't expect that they will reap the full return. And obviously that is why most governments on the right and left invest in public research because otherwise Mm -hmm. a, 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 um, 
not an optimal amount would be provided. Um, now, the, in an intangible economy, not only does research become more important, but other types of investment alongside research that have high spillovers become become more important. So this poses kind of a, a, a challenge, I think, for policymakers. If you look at it very crudely, it would basically say the need for taxpayer-funded investment, all else equal, would increase. You'd expect to see more investment having the character of, of R&D that needs to be subsidized. But obviously there is a big government failure problem here, because although we kind of know how to fund academic research through, through governments, we've been doing it for, 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 for many decades, we're much less good at knowing how to fund applied research well, how to fund other intangibles. And when I think about the, um, the, 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 the recent call we saw from people like Patrick, Patrick Collinson for progress studies, um, this is Tyler Cowen. This and is Tyler Patrick Cohen, Collison Patrick Collison's yeah. appeal for us to learn more about the the art and science of how to foster economic and technological progress. Um, that call in an increasingly intangible economy becomes very urgent. We need to know how to do this stuff well. Final question um, concerns monetary policy. One of the arguments you make in this uh, essay is that it's become less and less effective in the era of intangibles. Uh, uh, could you explain that? It's, uh, it's a little difficult to wrap your head around, yeah. but it's important. That's absolutely right. I mean, this is partly a function of slower growth, which, as we said earlier, intangibles have a, have, mm -hmm. a, have a contribution to. The closer you get to the zero economic growth, the less flexibility you have to raise and lower interest rates to stimulate the economy. But it also relates to the scalability of intangible assets. In an economy where a lot of your assets are effectively infinitely scalable, that's effectively the same as there being a lot of fixed costs in businesses. And if you, for monetary policy to be effective in the classical sense, you want the opposite. You want business to have lots of variable costs, so they're very sensitive to bank to central bank base rates. Here, here the firms can adjust more. Precisely. Well, because because the, because they will respond. The I guess the classical way that your monetary policy works is when you lower interest rates, it becomes more attractive for firms to invest right. because they can borrow yes. money more cheaply. Um, if the output from businesses, if the amount that they produce is less dependent on their investment decisions because they have these assets which are effectively fixed cost and they can ramp up production almost almost infinitely without borrowing more the output in the economy becomes less sensitive to, to, to interest rates. So just when central bankers are feeling very weak, when monetary policy is not very powerful because growth is so low, along comes the effect of intangibles and potentially makes their power, the, the power of monetary policy, even weaker. Well, thank you very much, Dean. That's a, a, a wonderful a tour of your essay. Thank you. Um, and your recent research, the, the essay co-authored with Jonathan Haskell, is called An Agenda for the Intangible Economy. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.